The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. A reading from Amos 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from its den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall into a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and, and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring your def- down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I will punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. God, we thank you for your word. Well, uh, good morning, uh, everyone. Uh, uh, As Ben mentioned, my name is Graham Hunt, and if uh, you're visiting uh, with us today, uh, you know you now have a sub, so sorry about that. Uh, Pastor Chad and I served on pastoral staff of another church in town for a number of years together, and uh, despite the fact that he stood me up for breakfast this past Friday, he remains a dear, dear friend. Uh, That's kind of an inside joke. He felt so bad about it, so good opportunity to just kind of needle him again on that one. So it's a great pleasure to be uh, with all of you here uh, today. Uh, My paternal grandparents fled the Nazis. In 1940, my grandparents were living on the Isle of Jersey. Uh, Jersey is a British crown dependency. It's one of the Channel Islands uh, off the coast of France. Uh, So close to France, in fact, that when I go and visit my cousins, uh, it's often that I'll catch uh, a French cell tower on my phone and T-Mobile will send me a message saying, welcome to France. Well, not in France, but thank you anyway. The Channel Islands and their experience in World War II gained some notoriety a few years back in in 2018 with the release of the movie with the the title that's impossible to remember, The Guernsey 
Literary and Potato Peel Society, I believe it is, okay? And this movie, for those of you who've seen it, detailed the experience of these Channel Islanders under Nazi occupation during World War II. Well, unlike the people in the movie who opted to stay, my grandparents opted to flee. And in fleeing, they had to leave everything. And I remember when I was young, not understanding that detail. Like, you know, couldn't you think ahead a little bit and maybe you know, order a shipping container or something like that? You know, why did you have to leave everything? And what I didn't understand at the time was just how fast disaster struck. Essentially, for those of you who know the history, um, Germany in World War II invaded France on May 10th of 1940. And the perception was kind of like this was going to go on a while. This was going to be like World War I, and Germany and France were just going to duke it out a little bit, you know, in trench warfare for a number of years. But by July 14th, Paris fell just five weeks later, and essentially France was under German control. Now, this created a, an issue for uh, Churchill and the War Cabinet because what do we do with these Channel Islands, which are just 12 miles off the coast of France? Do we try to send a whole bunch of troops down to defend them? Or do we just kind of, you know, basically say they're, they're indefensible and we have to give them up? And on June 19th, Churchill made the decision to basically that they would not be defended. And that people had an option. They could flee, be evacuated, or they could stay and try to ride it out uh, under Nazi rule. My grandparents chose to flee. And good thing they did because just a few days later on the 28th, Jersey was bombed. And then on July 1st, uh, it was occupied. So from a period of Churchill's decision to the occupation was a period of 12 days. They had that many days to figure out if they, what, you know, what they were going to do. And my grandparents had been warned, and my grandparents heeded the warning. And you know, perhaps I wouldn't be standing here today with you if they had not. You know, as you know, for those of you who have been going through the series in Amos, the book of Amos is also a warning of impending disaster. Written about 760 BC, 750 BC, uh, it's addressed to a nation, Israel, that broke off a couple hundred years earlier from a southern nation called uh, Judah. And um, it's a bad nation. <laughs> There are, over the course of its 200 and, you know, plus year history, it had zero godly kings. It was that bad. And Amos comes, a prophet with a message of irrevocable doom. Uh, the shock of Amos's message is, is this. You know, at the time, Israel was enjoying a time of relative prosperity. Had a strong military was doing lots of trade with other nations. Uh, it was at peace with its neighbors. Its territory was expanding. Things were good. But Amos comes and says, judgment is coming. He doesn't say by whom, and he doesn't say when, but the what is final. Israel is done for. God's judgment is severe and certain. Now, now, we know, being on this side of history, that it happened to be the Assyrians who attacked Israel, and the date was, was around 722 B.C., about 30 years after Amos spoke. Now, to put this in perspective, imagine that a prophet came to us in the U.S. right now in a time of relative prosperity, the you know, stock market near, a, near an all-time high, and, uh, you know, 
time of relative peace. We're actually no longer at war with any nation right now. And imagine the prophet said, in 30 years, your country is not going to exist. Very similar situation to what Amos uh, was proclaiming. And what would we do? We'd pro- you know, we might dismiss the warning like, ah, that's not going to happen. Or we might take heed. Uh, I think when God warns of severe consequences um, because of sin, I, I think it's in our nature initially to dismiss. I think that's human nature. Ah, it won't be that bad. Kind of in the same way that the Channel Islanders didn't think that the Germans would conquer France so quickly. It won't be that bad. We think we might be able to get away with it for a while. We think God isn't going to take it that far, that the consequences won't happen to me. But like what I'd like to propose today is in the midst of God's consequences that he provides three mercies. Number one, in the midst of God's severe consequences, he provides the mercy of warning. Number two, in the midst of God's severe consequences, he provides an end to oppression. Point three, in the midst of God's severe consequences, he provides release from false security. So point one, uh, which is verses one through eight, in the midst of God's severe consequences, he provides the mercy of warning. Look, Look at verse one with me. Verse 1, God's got something to say, doesn't he? Hear this. Okay, it's a call. Listen, right? (laughs) Listen to what i got to say. And, you know, what he's got to say doesn't sound good because the word against is used twice in these sentences, right? Now, uh, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family. Uh, Now, this puts us on alert. I can tell you if your spouse or your close friend comes to you and says, I've got something against you and says it twice, you know you're in, you know, something's incoming, right? (laughs) Okay, you're about to get hit with something. But, you know, wait, maybe it's not so bad because he's talking about in verse 1 the whole family. Okay, that that sounds kind of comforting. And, okay, we're family. God has our back. And then verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. And the verb know in this particular usage has a sense of chosen or made a covenant relationship with. They're the only nation that God has made a covenant relationship with. So, again, not so bad. We're God's chosen. He's made a covenant treaty with us. He's got our back. But now the hammer falls. End of verse 2. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You know, it's if the sense that they're expecting that this covenant is going to mean that, you know, no punishment's coming. Where God says precisely the opposite. With covenant privileges come these covenant responsibilities which you have failed and so that could be confusing to those listening to this so in verses three through seven amos walks through a series of seven questions to kind of drive home the point and they go like this so follow along in verse three do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet well no, I mean, just, just, just try doing that at the mall sometime, okay? Just, you know, walk right up to a stranger and see how well that goes. No, you don't walk together unless you've agreed to meet. Uh, questions two and three. Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Well, no, he must have his prey in sight. You know, the idea in view here is that this is probably the roar of the lion as he's seeing his prey, running after it, about to get it. Next question, does a young lion 
cry out from its den if it's taken nothing? Well, no. He must have his prey. He must be eating his prey. The, 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 the picture here is probably of the lion who's back with the, the dead animal in his den, eating it. And, um, you know, he's crying to warn people off. Don't touch, don't touch my food. So, you know, what we have here collectively is a depiction of two certain events, about to be dead and dead, okay? And similarly, when we go into questions four and five, we have the same thing. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there's no trap for it? Well, no, there has to be a trap. Uh, and the trap here is probably referring to that part of the snare where, you know, the bait is. It's, 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 it's the hook, right? The bird seeing the bait and going down to it. Next question, does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Well, no, that's not the way snares work. Snares only work when they've actually got something. They snap shut. So again, we've got these two cause and effect questions depicting two certain events. About to be dead, dead. And then questions six and seven, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Well, no. Back in those days, if the trumpet's blown in the city, you better be afraid because it means that there's an army surrounding your city. And two, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to be attacked or you're going to be sieged. You are going to fear. And lastly, question seven. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? No. I guess not. Again, there's a pattern of two events about to be dead dead. If we were to end there, I think this would be very depressing for us. But we get a couple more verses. Some bonus verses with some bonus questions, we'll call them. And in verse 7, the bonus verse is, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. You know, the mercy of God is that our God is a God who warns. Um, I don't know if you're like me. Uh, on YouTube, I find myself drawn to these disaster videos, like the tsunami videos. Just who I am. And the amazing thing about these tsunami videos is, you know, the ones from Japan. The sirens are going off. The water's getting sucked out of the bay. And one thing I've learned about tsunami videos is if you're ever standing on a beach and the sirens are going off and the water's getting sucked out into the bay, what you should do is look around and find the highest piece of ground and run. But inevitably on these videos, some people are just standing there by the seawall and they're just waiting to see, oh, I wonder what's, what's going to happen. Um, I think that's a beautiful picture of what God does. God provides the siren. God provides the warning that in the midst of disaster, there is something that we can do about it. You know, so so what, what does this first half of the passage mean for us? Because th this is a tricky one. I'll admit, this is a tricky one to figure out, you know, application for. What does a message of certain and impending doom to a nation which has failed its national covenant mean to us as individuals? And so I kind of put myself in the situation of somebody who was there at that time listening to Amos. Okay, you're listening to him. 
and you're hearing that your nation's going to be gone. Okay, well, it's not like I can repent and change that. The national judgment's fixed. It's not like if all of us change, that's going to be fixed. You know, last week you heard, for three sins of Israel or for four, I will not revoke my punishment. It's irrevocable. It's going to happen. So what am I supposed to do personally, individually, to this news? And I think there's two answers to it. One is, don't dismiss it. And secondly, align ourselves with whatever God's purposes are for it. And I think that that's our job today. Um, it kind of reminds me of Jesus in Luke 13. So people were coming to Jesus. The, the, scene, the scene in Luke 13, you don't have to turn there. But in Luke 13, the people were coming to Jesus. And the scene was that they were kind of giving him the disaster news of the day. It was kind of the CNN report of the day to Jesus. And it reads like this. There were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Pilate had killed a bunch of people. And Jesus answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then another story. Another, Another CNN story here, okay? Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Okay, that was a bad event. Some tower fell down, killed 18 people. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Um, And I think this is what Jesus is saying about disaster. Uh, Don't get hung up on the, the why of why it's happening or did these people have it coming to them. The point of disaster is for a personal object lesson for us. Repent, or you will likewise perish. Don't dismiss a line. We see that in a couple of ways. I mean, we see that, in, uh, we see that before we come to Christ. God is saying, uh, you are born in a condition under judgment. But I'm warning you, you need to do something about it. And that what we need to do about it is believe in Christ. We see that post-coming to Christ where you know, God, God has set up this system of, of discipline where he's warning us. He's saying, guess what? If you fall into patterns of sin, I will train you. I will, I will, I will work with you and train you and make it right. And we know how this works. I mean, you know, it's sports, right? We're on a soccer team. Uh, we have a coach, we screw up, we don't pass the ball right, something like that. And the coach yells, or he pulls us aside, and he says, you're not doing this right. What you need to be doing is this. And then we do it the second time, and we still mess up, and we do it wrong, and the coach pulls us aside and said, didn't you hear what I told you? You got to do it this way. And then finally we, finally we get it. This concept in Hebrews that we were reading through in our New Testament passage really is this concept of training. It's what God does for us. When he sees these patterns of sin in his life, he's gracious to us, he warns us, he says we're doing wrong, and he basically lays out the steps to make it good again. Um, You know, there's a number of ways that we can apply this. Uh, You know, one is just, you know, the habits, the spiritual disciplines of introspection. Uh, You know, just a very practical level. You know, some people would recommend that, you know, when the next time you find yourself under God's harsh discipline... Where, you know, because of a sin that you've done a zillion times over and over and over and over and over again, take an hour. Go for a walk in the woods. 
and ask yourself these two questions. Question one, how did I get into this mess? What were the precise series of steps that got me into this? My thoughts, my beliefs, my actions, the behaviors, the timeline of all that, how, how, you know, how it all laid out. And two, step by step, how do I prevent these same series of steps from, from happening again? What are my fail-safes? What are my stopgaps? You know, just in the same way that the sports stars, you know, watching the film to see what am I doing wrong? What do I need to do differently? Um, because most of our sins are habitual. They are, right? Uh, we do the same things over and over and over again. It's what the Puritans called our besetting sins. It's the ones that just live with us constantly over a series of years. So we align ourselves with God post-acceptance of Christ by aligning ourselves with his training, with his discipline. Okay, so that's point one. So summarize point one. In the midst of God's severe consequences, he provides the mercy of warning. Our job, don't dismiss, but align with those purposes. All right? Point two, and we'll go much quicker on this point because it covers much the same ground that you covered last week. In the midst of God's severe consequences, he provides an end to oppression. Again, we must not dismiss, we must align. So turn with me, verse 9, and let's take a look at verse 9. So, proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. Now, what's going on here? Ashdod is one of the major cities in the nation of Gaza. You've dealt with Gaza in a previous week. Gaza was one of the nations that was under judgment. Gaza was one of the nations that had enslaved people from Israel. Bad people. Egypt, well, we know all about them, right? Egypt enslaved Israel for 400 years. Again, bad people. And what does the word stronghold really imply here? Well, the stronghold okay, is the fortified citadel in a major city where the leading rulers of that city live. I mean, you've seen the movies, right? You know, it's kind of the place where the upper class has these nice fortified houses where they feel that they're going to be safe. And so it's really an address to the ruling class of these evil nations to come and act as witnesses to Israel, And the interesting thing is, uh, in that time, we think of Samaria from the New Testament as something of a region, but in that time, it was actually a city. It was the capital city of Israel, and it sits on a hill surrounded by other hills, and metaphorically, God is saying to the evil rulers of these other nations, come and sit on these other hills surrounding the capital city of Israel. Israel, which is Samaria, and kind of be a jury to the trial that I'm going to have with the leaders of Israel. You know, if you ever have to go to court and you look over to the jury box and you see, oh my goodness, there's the uh, person who always backstabs me at work and there's the in-law that I don't like and there, you know, you're like, you know, you're in for a, a heap of trouble because... You know, it's all the people who hate you that are in that jury box. And why is God doing this metaphorically? And I think it's basically the point of it takes one to know one. These evil ruling nations are coming in to act as the jury because they are the only ones who will be able to understand the evil rulers of Israel itself. 
And we find out in verse uh, 9 and 10 what these issues are. Uh, Verse 9, great tumult, which means that they're really putting their people in terror. People are running around the city in terror. It's like the, it's like the purges of Stalin. It's, it's awful. It's just an awful environment. Or um, they're oppressed. Again, the oppression in verse 9. Verse 10, they don't know how to do right, which implies that they don't have integrity. They're not acting with integrity to their people. Or they store up violence. Again, it's the idea that they're doing physical harm to the people that they're supposed to be ruling. And lastly, robbery. They're, they're actually going out to their own people, robbing them and bringing those goods back into their own strongholds, back into their own fortified houses. And, you know, in some ways, in some ways, they're almost doing worse than the surrounding evil nations, because at least the other nations have the wisdom to know that, um, you know, you don't plunder your own people. You, pl- you go to the other nations and plunder them, right? Israel is so bad, it's plundering its own people. How bad can that oppression get? Well, we know how bad that oppression is going to get and what God's going to do about it because he said, an adversary shall surround the land, this is verse 11, an adversary shall surround the land and bring your defenses down from you and your strongholds will be plundered. Do you, you see the idea of... Uh, of, of uh, a punishment that fits the crime here. The leaders are stealing by bringing the people's goods into their strongholds. Guess what? This nation, Assyria, we now know is going to come and it's going to steal the plunder out of your strongholds. It's a punishment that fits the crime. And then he describes just how bad it's going to be. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd, verse 12, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, shows how the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued, okay? Um, there's been a cottage in our family for three generations. Yes, we're blessed to have a cottage. My grandparents, my other grandparents, not the ones who fled the Nazis, but um, the other grandparents were able to buy lakefront property in Wisconsin back when it was dirt cheap. And so, however, my sister bought it a few years back, and the place had really become run down to be honest. And so, as many families do, it was this decision of, do we try to repair this place, or do we do a tear-down and rebuild? And my sister, to her credit, decided to do a tear-down and rebuild, even though that means that 50 years of family memories are are gone. Um, I went up to see the day of destruction, where the backhoe was ripping the place down, because, again, 50 years of memories, so many things I wanted to, to remember as that structure got torn down. And I took this as my souvenir of the old cottage. So here it is, my souvenir of 50 years of wonderful memories up in that structure. Guess what? Amos is saying the same thing. By the time God is done with you, yeah, you'll still have something. You'll have a leg of a bed or a piece of a couch. It's sarcasm, right? They're not going to have anything. And I think... The application here, and again, we won't take too much time here because you you covered this last week, is that God is just God, a God who hates oppression. And the application for us is to really think through what oppression is. Essentially, it's it's kind of a twofold thing. It's one, where are we putting terror on a person? Okay, that could be anything from emotional terror all the way up to beating them, physical terror. And 
There's also the economic element of it. Where are we unjustly getting gain from a person? Where are we perhaps taking advantage of them economically? You know, it would be a situation where, uh, you know, who knows? Uh, you, you know, if you're, you're in a work environment and maybe you, as a salaried employee you have to work a little bit of overtime, but if somebody's asking you for overtime every single day, maybe that's starting to become something of an exploitive economic relationship. And I think the application is just align ourselves with God's purposes here. God is aligned with the oppressed. He's not aligned with the oppressor. And so the thing in our life is, is there anything in which we are pl- applying uh, terror on a person, fear or terror, or is there, is there any place in our life where we are applying unjust economic relationships on a person? If not, the, the application is just stop it. Okay, so point one, in the midst of God's severe consequences for sin, he provides the mercy of warning. Point two, in the midst of God's severe consequences for sin, he provides an end to oppression. Thank him for that mercy. And finally, point three, in the midst of God's consequences for sin, he provided, provides release from false security. Those things that we are trusting in that are not something that we should be trusting in, that provide no value. Verse 13. Follow along with me. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on that day I will punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Okay, here, two examples of false security, right? False security, one, counterfeit religion, okay? Bethel, okay, we talked about Samaria. Samaria is the capital of Israel. Bethel is the religious center of Israel. And and why is this the case? Well, if you recall, we talked about the fact that this northern kingdom of Israel broke off from Judah 200 years ago, and that created a problem because God said to worship in Jerusalem. Well, now in Jerusalem is in Judah. So Israel breaks off. Where does Israel worship now? It doesn't have Jerusalem anymore. And the first king of Israel came up with this great plan, and, and I quote from 1 Kings 12, After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who bought you out of Egypt. And he set one up in Bethel and the other up in Dan. And I can tell you that whenever you hear about golden calves in Scripture, that is not a good thing, okay? So here it is, the first king of Israel saying, No problem, we'll create our own religious center one of which is being Bethel, and we'll just put a golden calf there, and then people will come and they'll worship God there. Second, God's going to tear down the false security of wealth. Verse 15 says, I'll strike the winter house along with the summer house. You see, the the rich were so rich at that time, they had two houses. You know, in Wisconsin, we would say they had the primary residence and they had the lake cottage, right? And it was something that they were trusting in, and wealth can be a source of trust. Um, I think the illustration here is that I think many of us grew up in Christian traditions. I'll just put it this way, that, that, that sold us a bill of goods. 
um, based on the assumption that the Bible was not really or fully true. The claim was Jesus is not the only way to God. God loves you just as you are. Fundamentally, you, there's no sin that needs a Savior in your life. Um, you go on. Think about, for those like me who grew up in those, 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 those you know, Christian traditions, um, they sold a bill of goods. And for those of us who have come to understand the true gospel, that we are sinners and need Christ's substitutionary atonement to pay for our sins and have to appropriate that by faith, by making a decision at some point in our life, th th this problem that we grew up with is infuriating. It's just infuriating because it's, it, it, it's, it's giving people the false security that they are right with God when they are not right with God. And it's infuriating to God, too. And God's mercy is that counterfeit religion does not go on forever. The altars of Bethel get torn down. Amos pronounced to Israel that nationally, politically, economically, it was doomed. Disaster could not be averted. But individually, each of us had an opportunity to heed the warning, not dismiss it, and align with his severe purposes. Each had the chance to be part of his loyal remnant, the small group of people God would preserve as his people after the destruction that would carry salvation history forward. So what do we do? We, we too have that same offer to be part of God's remnant. All disaster is a warning to align ourselves with God. Christian brothers and sisters, as we align ourselves with God's purpose, no matter the disaster, whether it be the fall of Afghanistan or COVID or whatever, the point is, disaster is always the opportunity to align ourselves with God. And as we do so, we have no greater standard bearer than our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because the greatest disaster of the world was a whole human race fallen into sin under the judgment of God with no hope of self-remedy. Nothing that we ourselves could do to get out of that disaster. But Jesus aligned himself to his Father's will. And became our substitute. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And just hear Jesus' alignment with the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. May our alignment with the Father be so likewise. Let's pray. Lord God, in your severe judgment... In your bringing of disaster, 
in any, at any level, may we use that as an opportunity to hear and heed and align with your purposes so that we, like your son, may be ones aligned with your will. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.